I am sitting here at our little lonely table with two eminent readers, and that's what they're here for, to talk about the joys of reading, particularly the reading of great works, but lots of works less than great are still stimulating and of value in that they provoke thought and widen understanding. And those two readers are Mark Bauerlein, who is professor of English at Emory University in Atlanta, and this year is director of research and analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. Our other guest is an old friend who's been here a number of times before, Bruce Gans, the director of the Great Books Curriculum at Wright College, uh, one of the city colleges of Chicago. Also the founder and general uh, manager of an interesting institution called the National Great Books Institute, of which we will hear something. Let us begin by simply handling this tired basic question. What is a great book? And is it necessarily a kind of a killing endorsement to name anything a great book. <laughs> and a killing endorsement, that's a, that's a sad thought. But a, a great book is something that uh, can't be defined in any abstract terms, uh, I don't believe. Uh, it's something in which it has to fulfill a set of conditions. And I think one of those conditions is it has to stand the test of time. That is, it has to have appealed to people outside of its immediate context, people with different beliefs, different values, uh, different different attitudes towards things, and the people of, of all different acculturations can find inspiration from it, sometimes hundreds or even thousands of years later. One of the great makers of great book lists was a friend of ours and was freak rather frequently on this program, uh, Mortimer Adler, who uh, went to his reward only a few years ago at the age of 99, almost reaching 99. Adler was sometimes referred to, as you know, as the great bookie, and that he and Hutchins really started the whole Great Books Foundation and the Great Books idea when they both came as very young men to the University of Chicago. But Mortimer Adler and his colleagues over at Encyclopedia Britannica, which ran the Great Books operation for quite a while, were very loath to add books. Uh, every 10 years, they issued a new list of the Great Books, and grudgingly, they put on one or two things, if not by living authors, at least by authors fairly recently deceased deceased in this century. Mm -hmm. But the question was, uh, when recently inscribed literature manages to become great, or is it really a kind of a killing blessing to uh, list something, uh, say by Hemingway, and put it on the great books list? Is it killing? Does it tend to discourage people from taking it uh, as a possible source of literary joy and, and fulfillment? Uh, well, popular culture is king, there's no doubt about that, um, but I don't think that for any serious reader, being called great is any, you know, uh, uh, stigmatism and, and reason to avoid it. Uh, in fact, I think you see some of these uh, things like Oprah's Book Club and so forth, people look to a certain degree for uh, an expert to suggest and discriminate and show some book of... Uh, of particular merit, even though they may not call it great books. But I think that those, the ones who are the most, in my view, intellectually ambitious, uh, will be drawn to the best that's been thought and said. Why not read those books which are uh, supposed to be, uh, have a reputation or establish a reputation of being the most mm -hmm. profound, the most poetic, the most universal? The best that's been thought and said is, of course, a direct quotation from, um, Matthew, Arnold. from Matthew Arnold as he defines what the scope of proper literature and proper education should be. Right. To look at the works that convey the best that has been thought and said. How does one know 
by what criteria can one judge whether one is looking at a book that contains some portion of the best that has been thought and said? Well, I, I think that one of the things you have to have in order to make that judgment is a long and deep awareness of great traditions from the past. You can't judge a work's greatness solely on present criteria. You have to know the traditions behind it. You have to know other works of greatness. You, you have to build up your own reservoir of reading, uh, knowing something about uh, Homer, Virgil, Sophocles, knowing something about Dante and Milton. It, it actually lifts and deepens your judgment for present things. But uh, in terms of judging things in the present, one reason why Adler mm -hmm. and, and others were uncomfortable in bringing more current works into the great books list is they realized mm -hmm. that the closer you get in time and place to a great book, often the more uh, clouded or too, too close, too immediate uh, is, is your judgment. So uh, also, you know, there have been many works that came out and at their appearance, they were judged one of the masterpieces of, of literature, masterpieces of our time. And then you went and looked 30 years later and that work had been forgotten. I'll go, I'll go even further. It used to be that the university, the college, was the place where people who did not know what was great could find guidance and entree and help gaining the skills to appreciate those things that are great. Uh, I don't know if that's particularly the case now. I think right now the academy is uh, more interested in uh, forgetting and discrediting the canon than to, to nurture and present. You say you don't know if that's particularly the case. You do know. You know that, in fact, it is not the case. It is not the, the three case. Three of us are college professors, and we share the bitter knowledge that there's been a considerable decline in the seriousness of education in the humanities. You still have to do serious teaching in the sciences and in business schools and so on because there are skills that need to be uh, acquired <coughs> and sharpened uh, and your students have to go out and use those skills. But when it comes to the BA given essentially for humanities concentrations, you can still get exposure to some of the great books, but they just don't do it the way they used to. You have to go out of your way to get it at this point. Uh, I don't believe Shakespeare is even required, the greatest writer in the English language, perhaps in any language. Uh, in fact, the new trend now, is, as we were talking about uh, prior to the show, uh, is to go away from printed texts altogether. Uh, I have colleagues now, and I see much to my uh, amazement that uh, Norton Publishers is putting out a text where the emphasis is now on visuals and not on the printed word at all. The, 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 the audience, our audience may be aware of something called graphic novels, which is a euphemism for cartoon books. Uh, and which is there a perfect exemplification of the educational oxymoron. Yeah, I mean, to, I mean, I can see reading a cartoon book if you're uh, in ESL and you don't know English, and this helps gives you visual cues. But for research papers and for serious uh, training and rhetoric, uh, let me read just a couple sentences here. It's called Picturing Texts, Redefining Composition to Include Conscious Attention to Images and Design. Picturing Text teaches students to think rhetorically about words and images. With 40 readings and 200 images, it shows students how to compose visual texts as well as how to read them. Students who write on computers are able to add visuals to their texts and to design what they write. Picturing texts teaches them how. There is something that happened in the academy some while ago 
Mark Bauerlein has written about it. I was reading one of your articles along these lines just recently. And what that is is that the, uh, the new um, so-called literary theory types or theory types took over in the English departments and in the language departments. And essentially, theirs is an anti-literary, for that matter, even an anti-rational uh, sort of uh, commitment. Uh, they are there to tell us that literature is really a kind of a conspiracy, that anything has no more worth than anything else. Uh, in essence, that everything is in the mind of the reader, in the mind of the beholder, or in the social construction that certain rulers of the society put upon uh, the materials of literature or the materials of thought, of philosophy, and so on. So that, in fact, nothing has uh, intrinsic worth. Therefore, we can ignore a great deal that previously has been labeled classical. Well, the, the interesting thing about that for me is that we, we know that over about a 20, 25-year period, say from 1965 to 19, 1990, the humanities curriculum, the humanities instruction was shifted in its focus. Uh, instead of imparting to students a literary humanistic tradition and developing in them uh, skills of eloquence and composition, uh, the goal became oriented more toward an ideological or political one. And the goal for teaching the outcome in students was to inculcate a particular uh, political attitude uh, and orientation, tended toward a liberal uh, progressivist one. And, and we, we've seen the, the, uh, the patterns in that for a long time. But one of the strange things about it is that we can now look at the kinds of learning outcomes they produced in the last generation of students. And if we see that the humanities professors who became prevalent uh, dominant on campuses, took their inspiration from Karl Marx and from Simone de Beauvoir, a feminist, and from uh, some uh, third world, uh, third world radical revolutionary Franz voices Fanon. like Franz Fanon. Uh, that would be one thing. But if you ask their students, those students haven't learned very much about that leftist tradition itself. They come out of graduate school now with certain, let's just say, leftist or progressivist attitudes, but they don't know that much about Karl Marx. They don't know much about John Dewey, his theories of, of education. They don't know very much uh, about the new left. And so it, it's strange to me that the, the professors who wish to represent one end of the ideological spectrum don't even pass along to their students the textual, historical, intellectual background of that portion well, what of the do spectrum. Those, what do those students know much about when they finish four years? Well, what, what I see among, among the, the graduate students, which may be a better, a better index of this, is they come out with a very narrow specialization. They have focused on a particular <laughs> author, a particular time period, and they come, with a, they, they come toward it with a progressivist or, or liberal outlook. It used to be that any humanities PhD was expected to have some kind of broad erudition. Maybe not terribly deep, but everyone should be able to teach a course in Shakespeare. Who will have read some Wordsworth? Who will know something about the ancient Greek playwrights? <laughs> but now, with the forms of professionalization and specialization, you, you have 
pretty much uh, a dual orientation. One, you have mastered a very narrow set of texts that are your research specialty, and you have adopted certain uh, standard pieties uh, <coughs> from, one, uh, from one slice of the political spectrum. Unless uh, you do encounter some of the great works of literature, some of the great works of organized philosophical thought, social thought, for that matter, some of the great works of science, as one does in various uh, sectors of the educational world, one of them being the Great Books curriculum at Wright College right here in Chicago. You may well be doing more with the Great Books at Wright College than they're doing now at the University of Chicago. Well, uh, I like to think that's not true, uh, but certainly... Um, you're running them a pretty close competition, I would say. Really? At least. Uh, but if I may uh, slip in a plug uh, for the National Great Books Institute that has grown out of uh, what we're doing here, of which you are a uh, original board member, uh, we have been fortunate enough in having gotten about a half a million dollars worth of grants from the U.S. Department of Education's uh, the Fund for the Improvement of Post-Secondary Education, FIPSI, and a uh, NEH, National Endowment of the Humanities, uh, grant, uh, so that five other community colleges, uh, in, in addition to Wright, will be establishing great books curricula integrated into the core uh, courses, uh, which form the core of one's liberal education. Uh, and it is going to encourage, or is in the process of encouraging, faculty to come up with <laughs> great books, materials integrated into these various courses. Uh, and the interesting thing is, um, apropos of this uh, absolutely infuriating nihilistic argument about it doesn't matter what you read, everything, uh, everything's content is equal and nothing does you any more good than anything else, uh, we just got finished last year doing a statistical study, a, a CAP test is what it's called, and we found out that those who took four great books courses at Wright College experienced gains in reading, critical thinking, writing, mm -hmm. even math and science skills beyond not only those who hadn't taken those four courses, but their peers around the country. And since we deal with non-traditional minority students uh, and community colleges as a whole do, we're hoping that this can really make a spiritual and also practical difference to thousands of people. Now, Bruce, yeah. let, let, uh, thinking of those courses, the various great books courses in your curriculum, and the actual authors assigned yeah. and discussed, just run down a roster, not of all of the authors, but some sense of uh, what kinds of books, what kinds of authors are read, from the earliest to the most recent. From the earliest to the most recent, well, uh, the Bible, Gilgamesh, um, the Koran, New Testament, Old Testament, uh, Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, uh, Shakespeare, Dante. Uh, you skip the Greeks, no, no Plato or Aristotle? Oh, no, of course. You can't, uh, you know. Uh, They're in there, the too. The Greek philosophers, the Greek <clears throat> playwrights, uh, uh, Dickens, Eliot, uh, Conrad, uh, like that. Who's the, who's the, the latest author? The latest the author? Uh, we actually do have uh, one living author, uh, and that is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh -huh. who we have uh, decided uh, will will actually uh, make the test mm -hmm. of time. So he's our our one our one person who's above the earth instead of beneath it. You know, exposure to interesting thoughts conveyed in literary 
or at least articulate an exciting form, is possible even for children in elementary school. <clears throat> it's certainly possible in high school, though I doubt that most, in most high schools you encounter that at all. I have certain vivid memories of encounters which absolutely transformed and excited me, at least excited. Transform might be too much of a, of a bragging reference. Uh, what, I, what I often think of is one day I came into a high school class, to be sure it was in literature, it was in American literature, and it was in my senior year, it was kind of an honors course, and the teacher, who was a really quite wonderful man, suddenly started reading something to us in Italian. And I don't know Italian, but the opening lines that he read were, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita. Yeah, 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 he was, yeah. and he, he read yeah. ter Terza Rima stanzas from Dante yeah. uh, for probably two or three pages, and we were just fascinated by the sound okay. of it. Yeah. And then he told us what he was reading, and then he presented us with translations uh, of uh, those passages from Dante, and that was just so exciting. I, I would not claim that I instantly ran off and read uh, all of Dante uh, in the next month. I did not, but, but I it became stuck. aware of it. Yeah. It stuck, and I pursued it on and off over the years, and uh, I've even tried to learn a little bit of Italian, or at least I haven't really you studied know, Italian uh, properly, but I've had what, volumes which are ponies, with the Italian on one page, uh, and on the facing page, the English translation, and you know how one would jump from the one to the other to appreciate the original language form. I, I really and want to pick up on this. That doesn't ha does that happen in high school these days? Uh, I, I'm not in high school. I, I doubt very much that it happens. But does it I happen can tell in college? You that this is one of the core values and core goals that I see in what we are doing here. That is to say. It's unrealistic and unnecessary, in a way, to expect that uh, my students are going to, we're going to be doing Midsummer Night's Dream, and that they're going to come out of this as comfortable listening to Shakespeare's plays as I am. However, you know, if you haven't heard of Shakespeare, you've never seen any Shakespeare, if you don't know who Sophocles is, if you've never been exposed to a Greek play, if you don't know who Jonathan Swift is, you can't recognize irony, what we're doing is planting seeds, and that gives people a cultural baseline so that the next time they come across it or if they have an opportunity to be exposed to it it doesn't go over their head as something in the you know in an unattractive foreign language. Now it's clear to the two of you that it's clear to me that I'm running way behind on our commercial schedule. I should have done some commercials ten minutes ago. It's also clear to you that I'm not following the plan we should have agreed on what <laughs> we sat down before we began. <laughs> but we've been talking about something that agitates the three yeah, of us as yeah. academics who are rather disappointed with the turn that American sure. college education at least has taken in recent decades. But one thing we were going to do tonight, and we will begin to do so right after some impending commercials, is I'm asking you to simply pull out a few passages from one or another favored works, to read them and then to see, to make clear why you're excited by them and to show what thought or what considerations, what trains of further analysis or further reflection follow from those passages. This is a way really of recommending large, great works that can be read and should be read by intelligent people in the modern time. We'll proceed to a kind of sampler of interesting quotations from some great books as offered to us by Bruce Gans and Mark Bauerlein directly after this. And we return to Mark Bauerlein, professor of English at Emory University, and uh, this year, director of research and analysis for the National Endowment for the Arts, and to Bruce Gans, director of the Great Books Curriculum at Wright College here in Chicago. And uh, surprise me, or amuse me, uh, Bruce, you go first. Anything you want to pull out of your job? All right, uh, here is a selection. Uh, 
from Thomas Macaulay, a um, Vic- early Victorian historian and British parliamentarian. Oh, we got to say it. Thomas Babington Macaulay. The middle Babington name gives it Macaulay. an extra uh, rhythmic uh, punch, don't you think? Yeah. Well, Robert and I'll try one up you by saying he ended his career as Baron Macaulay, which you may, may or may not have known. But in any event, uh, this is from an essay on Milton. Uh, and here is what he has to say. There is only one cure for the evils which newly acquired freedom produces, and that cure is freedom. When a prisoner first leaves his cell, he cannot bear the light of day. He is unable to discriminate colors or recognize faces. But the remedy is not to remand him into his dungeon, but to accustom him to the rays of the sun. The blaze of truth and liberty may at first dazzle and bewilder nations which have become half blind in the house of bondage. But let them gaze on, and they will soon be able to bear it. In a few years, men learn to reason. The extreme violence of opinion subsides. Hostile theories correct each other. The scattered elements of truth cease to contend and begin to coalesce and at length a system of justice and order is adduced out of the chaos. By golly, directly relevant to Baghdad 2005. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's first, that should have been out of the president's speech, though he didn't lay it out in quite yeah. uh, those rich terms. But that the only condition uh, that will bring general social improvement to the Arab world or any place else is the cultivation of liberty well in my, and the provision of in my view, democratic institutions yeah, in my view uh, George Bush through uh, the influence of Nathan Sharansky and his uh, book a case for democracy mm. has really discovered the e equal MC squared of modern political thought which is by establishing democracy you make yourself safer so that it's not simply an altruistic act it's also a deeply self-serving act. Was that on the E equals MC square way back? Was it so, for example, for Aristotle when he wrote his politics? That endorsement of the value of democracy? I don't think that he was necessarily a champion of democracy. He also, I mean, he felt certain people were born slaves, certain people were uh, natural rulers, and and that sort of thing. I say Aristotle, not Plato, not the Republic. I think in the politics, he does say, examining the various constitutions that he knows about, that the constitution of a democratic state ultimately produces the greatest payoff in terms of human Human potential and fulfillment. Okay. But in in the 20th century, have any democracies made war on one another? Well, that's the great... that's the great new look in political theory that you get from certain guys in the political science departments now. It's even called uh, the democratic peace, the theory of democratic peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, a variant of that, though, which is all the more charming, is there's no record of any in modern history of any two nations that have McDonald's establishments in their capitals having gone to war <laughs> against one another. The theory of the Big Mac peace. The Big Bang piece or the Democratic piece? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what do you have, just by way of okay. an offering, a quotation that sure. fosters some further thought and reflection? Well, well you know, one of the things the, the National Endowment for the Arts uh, has done this year, last year, uh, under Chairman Jane, Dana Joy's guidance, is something called Shakespeare in American Communities. Mm. And, and that is uh, commissioning different performing arts uh, 
theater companies to tour the country giving Shakespeare performances to communities which some of which have never had a Shakespeare performance ever before. Some of the audience members and the kids were doing it in the schools, uh, trying to get over a thousand schools to have Shakespeare performances. Act, professional actors go and, and visit. And so far, it's a resounding success. But I think one of the best justifications uh, for that actually comes from a book uh, written a little over a hundred years ago, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois from 1903. And in that book is a chapter on education. And Du Bois is writing at a time uh, where you have a strict color line uh, in all public things uh, in the South and partly in the North. And if people do believe that African Americans are worthy of education, it's not higher education, it's more vocational training laid out much along the lines of Booker T. Washington's uh, Tuskegee Institute. But here's Du Bois completing his passage on higher education for African Americans in which he has made an eloquent case for teaching great books to those students. And he completes it by saying, I sit with Shakespeare, and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of the stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will. And they come all graciously, with no scorn nor condescension. So, wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Now the question is, if Du Bois had never had the opportunity to read Shakespeare, Aristotle, Aurelius, would he have become Du Bois? He was a very unusual man. He had tremendous... I, one shouldn't say he had great advantage, but he was able to utilize opportunities available to him very effectively. He was raised in Massachusetts, as I remember it, and he was a Harvard student, one of the first black men to go through the full Harvard program. Right, right. He, he graduated uh, from Fisk College as an undergraduate in mm -hmm. Tennessee. Then he went up to Harvard, uh, where he studied. He even went over to Germany to study German philosophy. He was uh, one of the uh, students of William James, and James had him over to house for dinner at times. But Du Bois did have uh, the advantage of going north and, and studying at the, the top schools of higher learning, and one of the first PhDs, uh, first black PhDs, not the first one, uh, but one of the first uh, to come out of Harvard. But maybe education isn't totally prophylactic. One must note that Du Bois, later in his life, for whatever reasons, and it's a complex and rich story, became a Marxist, a communist, a great enthusiast for uh, the Soviet Union, and ended his life uh, in Africa hanging on still to sort of Marxist delusions about the way in which one might best structure the polity. Right. And in fact, in the 1930s, uh, at the very time the purges and the show trials were mm -hmm. going on in the Soviet Union, uh, Du Bois was in a power struggle. Uh, at the NAACP over the direction of that institution. Du Bois wanted them to take a, a strong hard left uh, line on a lot of issues. And the interesting thing is Du Bois died in 1963, a few hours uh, before a particular gathering uh, on the mall uh, at the st on the steps of the uh, Lincoln Memorial. Where Martin Luther King gave his... Right, uh, 3,000, 4,000 miles away. Yeah. Right. Well, you see, these are this, this brings up two things. One is, I think, extremely important because 
um, the emphasis in the curriculum now is ethnocentrism. I know in our system we emphasize setting up special mm -hmm. programs to fit whatever ethnicity is in the ascendant at a particular camp. We must all celebrate cultural diversity, particularly if we're not members of any minority group, we must uh, well, celebrate yeah, them but, all but the more. Cultural diversity in many ways feeds an ethnocentrism, which college used to be, one of mm -hmm. the goals of college is to get you to transcend exactly so. your ethnocentrism. Exactly so. Uh, and not to judge things based on the color or gender of who wrote them, but the intrinsic merits. Now, I want to read something that King wrote apropos of what you had to say, but I want to make another point. One of the liberating things about great books is that they are not ideological. They're not lockstep. They disagree with each other. Plato and Aristotle disagreed fundamentally mm -hmm. on a lot of things. And the idea is to get as many different points of view as profoundly expressed as possible. Now, here is uh, another example of, a, uh, of King, one of the greatest men in American history, who clearly, in his letter from Birmingham jail, uh, shows that his thought and his action draws from his familiarity with the canon. Let me just read uh, one of the things that he, <clears throat> one of the thing, a couple of things that he uh, he says here. Uh, one thing he's talking about what laws should one and should one not obey, and I want you to pay attention to uh, where he draws his inspiration from. The answer lies in that there are two kinds of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely. One has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that, quote, unquote, here he's quoting an Augustine, an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades personality is unjust. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience, he says a little further down. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, <laughs> and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on a ground that a higher moral law was at stake. Uh, it was practiced by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act hmm. of disobedience. Uh, and let me see if I can find this. Uh, uh, here's the last one. Uh, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label of being called an extremist. Was Jesus not an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. So, as you read that, I could not but remember, this is a story I've told uh, on the air before, uh, 
an occasion when I was with Martin Luther King, escorting him around town. We were leaving uh, the Channel 7 location right at State and Lake, where he had done the Cups in it show. I was just showing him around. And as we exited, uh, the, 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 the price of civil disobedience is what is in my mind. As we exited, American Nazis and others were standing there, congregated, and screaming for his blood. Um, mm. Of course, there were cops there as well, and he was protected. But it was about 15 months later that he was shot down. Mm. Uh, and whenever I think of Martin Luther King, I think of that moment. Mm. We are late for some commercials. Um, and we'll go directly to those and then directly back to Mark Bauerlein and Bruce Gans. I did ask Bruce Gans and Mark Bauerlein to just come in loaded with excerpts, uh, their choice, and just read them, and let's uh, chat about them a bit uh, as a way of eliminating the endless joys and the endless profit available in uh, books of import, books of merit, uh, call them great or call them merely interesting, but things that last. And what's your next selection, Bruce Gans? Well, the next selection I have is from the Bible, which is... Um, That's a book that has indeed lasted. Which has lasted, which has meant uh, probably more to people than any other book in history, in which, of course, uh, in, in, in stretches is some of the most beautiful uh, writing ever put to paper, and which, of course, is not taught or offered as models of rhetoric or anything of that kind. We're trying to, or I'm trying to, uh, reintroduce a little bit of it, and I thought what I would do is to read an excerpt from the book of Job, which is probably the most um, perennially relevant uh, uh, part of the Bible because it's concerned with why do people suffer unnecessarily, but the poetry of this is absolutely uh, unsurpassed. And I'm going to read chapter 3 because of its literary beauty, um, a chapter which I assume has consoled people uh, for millennia. After this, <clears throat> pardon me, Job cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Yes, let that night be barren. Let no jo joyful cry be heard in it. Let those curse it who curse the sea, those who skill to rouse up the Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, and hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I? Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come forth from the womb and expire? Why were there knees to receive me or breasts for me to suck? Now I would be lying down in quiet. I would be asleep. I would be at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who have gold, who fill their houses with silver. Why was I not buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are free from their masters. Why is light given to one in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death 
but it does not come, and dig for it more than hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to one who cannot see the way whom God has fenced in? For my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Truly the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. He's an uh, ancient Hebrew, and one's response is very likely to be, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what troubles he saw. Right. Uh, and really, of course, uh, the book of Job is the, the ultimate text for what is still the most aching portion of uh, the general range of theology, namely the special subject of theodicy. Why does evil happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people was the title of the book by that rabbi some years ago. Right. How many great writers have addressed the question, how do you justify the ways of God? Yeah. And, of course, Job at the end gets the answer to that question from God, who basically God says, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Is that your question to ask me? Yeah, it's a wonderfully, I love this is a great book's text because there is no final answer. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a text of tremendous paradox. And one of the things I like about it is the Bible is not a commercial for God. It talks about people, uh, the, the, uh, the fathers uh, of Judaism and their moral shortcomings. Here you have a very poetic, um, almost a renunciation of life here in the most uh, theological of texts. But one thing I really like about this is is that Job's comforters, in, in, in my view, have always gotten a bad rap because they come to him and say, look, your kids are dead, you're, you've got all these, you've got leprosy, you've lost all your money, you've, you're sitting there in a, in a sack of ashes and look at every, you were the richest guy in the world, now you have nothing. Obviously, you did something wrong because God wouldn't do this to you if you had not done something wrong. And what's interesting about this is, isn't that, isn't that supposed to be the case? I mean, you're not supposed to be tormented for no reason. And yet, he hasn't done anything wrong, and there is a reason why he is being tormented, but it has nothing to do with his shortcomings. Now, has, from, from yeah. the class, as a student, I would ask you, yes, it's clear that... Um, uh, we have to try to figure out his motivations. But even more prompting and even more difficult is why did God do what he did? Well, we're told why. To prove a point to uh, the Satan. No, but that's not satisfying. It's not satisfying no. to us, but that's the that's what's given to us initially. Wouldn't, is... the, wouldn't the modern student want more of an explanation of God? There's a fellow who did a whole book about uh, God's career. This fellow out in California. Richard uh, uh, Friedman? Uh, no, 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 no. I think Jack his name. Miles. Jack Miles, yeah. yeah. In which God matures. The God who punished Job becomes a very different sort of God. Yeah. He learns from his mistakes. Well, he not only that, but he withdraws. Fred, when, when he begins, he's yeah. creating everything, and he's talking to everybody, and he's showing his face to Moses, and by the end, you know, he's like Joyce's idea of God. We're running towards uh, another point where I've got to stop for some commercials. But it's interesting. The question raised in the book of Job is constantly asked. Uh, there is a modern Tin Pan Alley song, not modern from yesterday, but from the 20s or 30s, Why Was I Born? Uh, which is the very same as what we hear yeah. Job carry on about with regard to uh, why did his conception go through. And one remembers, for example, Milton 
in the, uh, the in the beginning of his great poem, who says that his task is justify. to justify God's ways to man. Right. And Pope responds a while later and says, presume not God's God. ways to scan, the proper study of mankind man. is man. man. Right. So we're still kind of hung up on the question of the inscrutable purposes of God, which is to say fate, right. which is to say human suffering. Right. Well, that's what you meant, I think, when you said that uh, you can't understand, you, you haven't made the world, you haven't made the stars, so you can't understand that the ways mm -hmm. of God are not accessible to, you know, to human beings. Okay. Right. The Bible, Old and New Testament, as literature, uh, that's done in various colleges as a way of getting around the teaching of religion. I, I think one of the great masterpieces of English literature is the King James well, Bible. Sure. Yeah. Sure. If you, in, in fact, you read the King James Bible and you keep hearing echoes of a hundred other literary works mm -hmm. that came after. Well, sure. Yeah. Gentlemen, we are <clears throat> almost due for some commercials once again, then a brief newscast following shortly thereupon, and then we will return to yet more selections from Mark Bauerlein and Bruce Gans, and one special surprise selection that I've got for you in recording, but all of that will follow directly after we pause for these words. And once again, our guests tonight are both much identified with uh, great books one way or another. They've read a lot of them, they believe in the teaching of them, uh, and they do something about that. They are Bruce Gans, director of the Great Books Curriculum here in Chicago at Wright College, and the founder of the National Great Books Institute, which is to some significant degree funded by the government, I do believe. That's right. Uh, FIPSI and uh, the uh, NEH uh, are going to be supplying us with a website and some money to f set up a website to gather uh, resources together so that those faculty around the country who might be interested in incorporating some of these materials can get some guidance, get some models, uh, find some case studies that they can uh, hopefully uh, take some further steps in, some practical steps, and we're going to be there to help them if we can. And these days our other guest, Mark Bauerlein, whose regular post is professor of English at Emory University, is doing very important work within government at the uh, National Endowment for the Arts, of which he is the director of research and analysis. Uh, one of the things that you and your colleagues uh, put before the nation, and uh, a rather distressing gift it was, is your report, Reading at Risk, a survey of, a survey of literary reading in America. What's in there? It is a broad population survey uh, that we designed and we commissioned the Census Bureau to execute. And what we were at to, to find in that was what is the presence of literature uh, in particular and books in general in people's ordinary lives. We asked people, how much fiction, poetry, and drama do you read in a year? Uh, how many books do you read in a single year? We got a huge sample size, over 17,000 respondents. And we were able to break them up into demographic categories of age, income, race, education level, gender, and so on. And we could compare the results with 1982 and 1992, and then 2002, the, the latest study. When we got the numbers, we were surprised. Uh, we have all seen some deterioration of literary culture and reading, especially among young people in the United States in the last 20 years. But we didn't think it was so severe. Basically, we found a 10-point drop in the rate of Americans reading literature, any literature, uh, in a single year's time, and a 5% drop. Including graphic novels? 
<laughs> if, if 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 respondents wanted to include graphic novels in that in in that in that question, the, mm -hmm. that that was uh, that was up to them. But uh, when we looked at young people, 18 to 24, we saw a demographic that was one of the most active reading groups in 1982. In 2002, was one of the least active. What are the numbers reading like? groups? Uh, right now, we have about 42 percent of young people, 18 to 24 read a single, at least one, poem, novel, or play in a year's time. About 51% read any book in a full year's time. Any book of any kind, in terms of literature, any work of any length, of any quality, in any language, in any medium. 58% read at least one such work per year? No, no. 42%. Oh, oh, 42% do read and one work of literature. And the reciprocal 58 are people who don't. 58 do not. My God. So, uh, not even one poem. Not, not, not a single. We set the bar almost on the ground yeah. in order to qualify as a literary reader. Now we charted, you know, avid readers, casual readers, light readers, people going up to reading over 50 books a year. Now, uh, when we looked at, when we broke it down by age, income, all the other. Uh, different demographic categories, we couldn't find a single group that increased. People, uh, uh, for example, with a college education went up in terms of the, the, the numbers of people doing so. Education levels went up. Prosperity went up in that period of time. Reading books in general and reading literature in particular went down. What, what, has, what has done us in? Uh, is it, as Marshall McLuhan predicted at the dawn of the television age that, and he wasn't even aware really of the computers that were coming on, but is it that uh, the video culture has somehow destroyed reading as, and destroyed uh, printed matter as a basic source of information and a basic source of uh, connection well, to the real? Well, one thing we found uh, at the endowment was between 1982 and 2002, TV watching stayed pretty much the same. So it, it's not television that has cut into people's but reading what time. Has what, has uh, what has happened in the last 10 years, we have had a proliferation of entertainment alternatives created. Uh -huh. We have the Internet. We have instant messaging. We have email. We have iPods. We have cell phones, even. When, when I teach my students uh, and I uh, take a trip up to the library, you don't find very many of them browsing among the stacks. They are at the computers, and they're hitting those keys very quickly, which means they're sending out emails, or they're outside uh, on the cell phones uh, checking in. Would you mind if I disagreed? And even if you didn't mind. Uh, Please. I think it's the collapse of our educational system in terms of standards. I think that yeah. if mm. you don't teach people how to read, if you don't provide people with a baseline of knowledge, if you don't make any effort or any serious effort to equip people to appreciate language, to think about mm -hmm. profound and complex things, they're going to get out unequipped to do it. I've never been taught Farsi, and so I don't read Farsi. Uh, when you see the uh, utter irrational, self-serving hostility to the No Child Left Behind Act, which simply finally steps in and says we've got to remediate these contentless classes, this aversion to actually knowing something and insist that there be some kind of benchmark. And when you see this being presented as an act of, you know, I don't know how these people 
justify their opposition to having students come out knowing something, being exposed to something of substance. Uh, if you don't struggle with a text and begin to master it, you're not going to be able to, to grow and be able to master it someday. Well, I, I would say what you're talking about may be, may be a factor in the decline. But, but, Bruce, you see these declines also taking place in families making over $75,000 a year. Uh, you see it in graduate degree, people with graduate school degrees, <clears throat> and you know that they went to schools where they got some. Well, but the undergraduate courses education. they've been taking have been watered down and have been dumbed down and made, rendered more entertaining. Uh, and as we were agreeing early in our discussion tonight, some of the great literature that used to be available and even more or less required of those undergraduates is no longer in the curriculum Look, at all. Look, great books supply wisdom. They are, when I went to college, I wanted to find out the meaning of life. And I expected to have texts which are going to shed some light on those questions. Mm -hmm. And having been given a, you know, a rudimentary introduction to these things, I wanted to pursue this. If you're not given it, or if in the, in the academy you're told that uh, you shouldn't read Shakespeare because some idiotic reason, because he's white, or you should read somebody because mm -hmm. uh, he's a Marxist, and you're not uh, uh, stimulated, exposed to the wisdom, uh, you're unequipped uh, in, on, on all kinds of levels but, to, to pursue it. By the way, Bruce, did you ever find the meaning of life? Uh, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. Several times? Uh, as, as far as meaning goes and as far as meaning doesn't go, I should say. I mean, uh, I think Hemingway in, um, uh, I want to say it's uh, this, the one that made this in the movie with Spencer Tracy, his greatest work, um, Old Man on the Sea. All right, talks about the few things you can learn from life, what are true and what are false. Uh -huh. uh, if there's some kind of harmonizing truth, I don't know about that, but certainly you can adjust to life's disillusionments and disappointments and find out what are real pleasures and what are In the great Jewish pleasures. story, the ultimate meaning of life that the old Chochem conveys to the young rabbinical student is life is like a fountain. And that student then goes off from Poland to the United States where he becomes a successful rabbi over 20, 30, 40 years. And whenever things are bothering him, he reminds himself, when people are acting up in, in, in the congregation and making trouble, he reminds himself life is like a fountain. Everything falls in order. But... Fifty years later, he's back uh, in the same town in Eastern Europe, and he seeks out the old teacher who's still alive, miracle of all miracles. And he goes to see him, and he tells him, you know, frankly, your meaning that life is like a fountain sustained me for so many years. But now in recent years, when I say life is like a fountain, when troubles arise and I deal with them by reminding myself that life is like a fountain, a still voice in me uh, asks, first in a whisper, now in a shout, in what way? Is life like a fountain? What does it really mean that life is like a fountain? What is a fountain itself? How is life like a fountain? And the old Chochem pauses for a long while, and finally he says, shrugging his shoulders, well, so life isn't like a fountain. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is one of the greatest stories of all time. Well, well one thing, I'll, I'll, I'll stick, I, I think it, it's, it's much bigger than the education system. It, it, there, 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 there are cultural attitudes that kids bring bring to school with them. You know, UCLA does a, a freshman uh, survey project every year, and one of the things they ask students is, why do you come to college? <laughs> and 30 years ago when they started this, the, the, uh, about close to 70% of them uh, said to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. 
eh, maybe 20 or 30 percent of them said to pursue a career. Now those numbers are reversed. The, the meaningful philosophy of life motive is way down, and the career option is is way up. You've just been out today. Uh, you mentioned this before, though. I haven't had a chance to really ask you about your impressions. But you were out today at Shimer College, is that right? Yes. Uh, I know those people. Some of them have been here on this program more mm -hmm. than once. Uh, that's a great books-based curriculum, isn't it? It, it? You know, you read the catalog. It's it's a daunting reading list. Everything from uh, Newton's optics mm -hmm. to Sophocles' uh, Antigone. Have you looked at their achievements before, or was today sort of a first encounter? Uh, this was my first encounter at, at the college. I know the president. Yeah. Uh, well, well, what's your impression about how it goes at a, a deviant institution of that sort? I know that their their students have an extraordinary rate of success in going on to graduate school. Uh -huh. uh, and one of the things that I, I think a lot of uh, educators make the mistake of is that in order to train people for the workplace, that you need to bring those workplace materials into the classroom so that uh, in in high schools say they're trying to bring more informational text into into the curriculum in order to prepare students for for you know jobs in in, in the business world say I, I don't i don't see that as a necessary uh, as a necessary conclusion at all i i think mm -hmm. that reading great books reading hard works of literature reading reading difficult works of poetry are, are challenging and develop those language skills that let them go proceed to deal with informational text much more effectively. One of the great lessons from antiquity to the present is that one must, if one is to function as a responsible and decent human being, one must meet one's social obligations, the true obligations. Uh, I've got obligations that pop up six times a night on this program. <laughs> and right now we're directly on time for some commercials. And we're going to hear from another great classical scholar, uh, the uh, sometime prince of Denmark, Hamlet. Uh, I want to play for you a, uh, a portion of a, a scene of Act Two, Scene One. This is when uh, the uh, the company of players come, those who will then do the play within that Hamlet has rewritten for them, the play within which he will catch the conscience of a king. But when they first arrive, Hamlet greets the player king who's a sort of an old acquaintance of his, and they ask him to recite a few lines just for Hamlet's own pleasure. And then Hamlet goes on to soliloquize in response to what the player king has done. He asks the player king to, um, uh, to recite a soliloquy given by uh, Hecuba, the queen of Troy, over the death of her husband, Priam, who's just been slaughtered uh, uh, in the Trojan War. And... Uh, Thus, it's clear that Hamlet himself, as a student at, Vo at Wittenberg, isn't he, <clears throat> is a good classic scholar who's read the Aeneid. And while I w we were talking about this, just before we went, came back during those commercials, you pointed out to us, Mark, that the Aeneid is quoted on the American $1 bill. That's right. If you uh, look just beneath the period, uh, sorry, just beneath the pyramid, you see a Novus Ordo Seclorum, mm -hmm. a new order in the world. That's the United States. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Now, we were saying, you were saying, I think, somewhat earlier, Bruce, uh, you characterize Shakespeare as the single greatest writer of all time. Some might want to argue with that. Also, the Germans would argue that uh, Shakespeare actually was German, unsere Shakespeare, and that somehow the English have appropriated them. But be that as it may, Shakespeare is 
clearly an experience that no one should miss. And you can go on enjoying and deepening your pleasure with uh, Shakespeare until the very end of life. Uh, I recently got from a particular um, source uh, the full recorded Shakespeare, the Archangel recordings of all of the plays of Shakespeare, issued by a, um, uh, what's their name? Uh, Maggie will remember the name of the company. We should mention it once again, who've turned out all of the Shakespeare plays, and she'll put it up on the screen for me, so I will give it to you in an instant. But uh, here's an excerpt from Hamlet, and we pick it up just as the player king is uh, midway in his soliloquy from, or at least drawn from, the Aeneid, and then Shakespeare's response. And that's done by audio editions. Uh, it's issued in this country by audio editions. All of these productions uh, of all of the, of the separate plays are done by English actors, and quite well done, I think. So shall we hear it? We'll hear both um, uh, something drawn from the Aeneid and then a famous soliloquy from Hamlet. <coughs> but who, ah, woe, had seen the mobile queen? The mobile queen. Now that's good. Mobile queen is good. Run barefoot up and down, threatening the flames with bison room, a clout upon that head where late the diadem stood, and for a robe about her lank and all o'er-teamed loins, a blanket in the alarm of fear caught up, who this had seen with tongue in venom steeped against fortune's state what treason have pronounced. But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport, in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamor that she made, unless things mortal move them not at all, would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven, and passion in the gods. Look where he has not turned his color and his tears in his eyes. Uh, prithee, no more. Tis well. I'll have thee speak out the rest of this soon. Good, my lord, will you see the players well bestowed? Do you hear? Let them be well used, for they are the abstract and brief chronicles of the time. After your death, you were better have a bad epitaph than their ill report while you live. My lord, I will use them according to their desert. Oh, God's bodkin, man, much better. Use every man after his desert, and who shall scape whipping? Use them after your own honour and dignity. The less they deserve, the more merit is in your bounty. Take them in. Uh, come, sirs. Follow him, friends. We'll hear a play tomorrow. Dost thou hear me, old friend? Can you play the murder of Gonzago? Aye, my lord. We'll hat tomorrow night. You could for a need study a speech of some dozen or sixteen lines which I would set down and insert in, could you not? Aye, my lord. Very well. Follow that lord, and look you mock him not. Ah. My good friends, I'll leave you till night. You are welcome to Elsinore. Good, my lord. I say goodbye to you. Now I am alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, 
could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-metalled rascal, peak like John O'Dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing, no, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie i' the throat as deep as to the lungs? Who does me this? Huh? Swoons, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh, vengeance! Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab, a scullion, fire pumped for about my brains. Um, I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks, I'll tent him to the quick. If it do blench, I know my cause. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And that play did stir up a lot of trouble, as we know. I'd like to discuss this that we've just heard with you further. But we have to talk about another thing that's just been played through, namely the big basketball game tonight. And on that basis, we go to the newsroom and to Paula Cooper. Well, life is full of disappointments. I guess uh, Hamlet was telling us something like that. And we've just heard the same from Paula Cooper. Uh, we'll go to commercials in a minute. But uh, back to Shakespeare, if we might. Uh, one of the great mysteries, there are many abiding mysteries which one encounters in literature. One of the great mysteries is why does that play work so deeply and so uh, 
so so insistently upon us. One may have read it and seen it a hundred or heard it a hundred times, yet it grips you every time. How many people have interpreted that play? Everyone from the German philosopher Hegel Mm -hmm. to the 18th century uh, uh, dramatists up to the contemporary literary theorists. And not to not to mention um, uh, Jones, the student of Sigmund Freud. That's right. That's right. Where Lawrence Olivier followed, what's his first name? Ernest Jones. Ernest follows Jones. Ernest Jones's interpretation right. when he did his film of Hamlet. Uh, however fascinating some of those interpretations are, none of them will ever exhaust the mystery of that creation and explain why people keep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. coming back to it. You, you you read some of those interpretations, those explanations, some of them are brilliant, and, and you want to read them, but they almost have more an independent value than a value of explaining why one still wants to read that play and see it again and again, even though it has one of the most bloody conclusions yeah. uh, and sad conclusions. T.S. Eliot grappled with that and decided that somehow the play's a failure. The play's an artistic failure, yeah. that's right, <laughs> according to Eliot. Uh, I would say that the reason this play is so popular is that it has a lot in common with that chapter of Job, that Uh it's a great, sustained expression of despair in supremely poetic language and manages to create this undercurrent of anxiety, this great dark uh, foreboding, Uh, but it does so with... uh, uh, a level of poetic genius and lyricism, which uh, from start, which which was sustained, which is sustained from start to finish. Very nicely said, indeed. Um, we are going to pause in just a moment, and also it's time to invite some telephone calls. We're opening lines. The number five nine one seven two double zero. We are not unaware that the basketball game tonight probably uh, lured away some large portion of our audience. But to prove that somebody's out there, give us a ring quickly. Five nine one seven two double zero for any question you want to raise, any thought you want to share. The lines are open. Five nine one seventy two hundred. And if you'd prefer to reach us via email, the email address extension seven twenty at tribune.com. Get those calls and or emails in quickly. We hope to go to our listeners directly after this. And we return to our two guests of the evening, Mark Bauerlein, Director of Research and Analysis for the National Endowment for the Arts, and Bruce Gans, Director of the Great Books Curriculum at Wright College. 591-7200 is the number, and uh, get your calls in if you want to join us. Uh, there are some lines taken. Some are still available. Here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I must have wondered about Hamlet. The, uh, his age, I was guessing, was like in early 20s. Why was he skipped over, I guess, as king? Well, that's one of the things that uh, Shakespeare does not fully clarify. Uh, I guess there'd be no play if he were king. That's true. So I've always interpreted it as him, in a sense, uh, trying to get his, not just revenge, but his uh, place, I guess, in a sense, his kingship. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer to that. Well, he never says anything in the text about uh, he, this he, being a source of his grievance. Uh, no, the grievance is the murder of the, his the father. Grievance is the murder of his yeah. father, and not only that, but the quick remarriage of uh, uh, of uh, his mother to, to to her brother-in-law. To haste with such dexterity to incestuous yeah. sheets. Yeah. Yeah. Hamlet is away at school. Oh, I'm sorry. I was trying to put too much in there. I guess. Well, I think that happens a lot. Look, I think it's reasonable 
to, to read that in, but uh, ultimately I think that uh, uh, great books, I would, never, I would never say that great books are somehow immaculate conceptions and that there aren't perhaps some, you know, technical or practical Ste shortcomings. Stephen Greenblatt was here recently. He's had this very interesting new book on Shakespeare, and he points out something that other scholars have certainly also said as well, that the plays are sort of pastiches. They're thrown together sometimes uh, with, almost in an improvisatory rush. There's there's a theater there that needs a play, right. and uh, there are deadlines to be met, and also very often the actors rewrite some of their lines, and it's the real life of uh, uh, the theater in London is has an influence upon the nature of the plays themselves, including some of the ambiguities that well, bedevil you the know, script. Well, you know, I would take issue with that simply because so often in Shakespeare you find. Uh, as in King Lear, as in Midsummer Night's Dream, these two or three mm -hmm. subplots, plots flowing in parallel, and there are mm -hmm. the, the thing seems to be so well put together that uh, he may have been very practical in, um, you know, when he wrote and what uh, what kind of play he wrote according to what he thought would make the most dough. Uh, but uh, these things are, I mean, they may not follow the classical you know, want everything completed in 24 hours. Uh, but there's not really a sense of disorganization, I don't think, that you would uh, find in these places, say it was a pastiche. Mark, I read yeah. you a, an email that's come in. Uh, I love to read and read often. However, as my professional life has been placed in ever-increasing jeopardy due to increased global competition, I find myself reading more and more books about the technology that will guarantee my continued employment for another few years. As I sit there reading very dry text about telecommunications and computer science, I often glance at my growing stack of unread fiction, wishing I could trade XML for Dickens. Of course, if I become technically obsolete and lose my job, I'll have plenty of time for such things. You, you know, I think that feeling actually extends down to students in lower and lower grades. They feel that, what is the payoff if I read this novel? Where, where, what does it profit me? How, how do I learn more from this novel in order to do this job or to qualify for this career or to get into graduate school in, in a management program? For, for, for a lot of them, sitting down for three hours and picking up a novel, an 18th century novel, and reading through it, it, it just doesn't seem to be a, a cost-benefit analysis. The same um, listener adds to his email uh, a reference to something I said earlier when I quoted um, John Milton saying that his purpose is to justify God's ways to man. And this fellow says, sorry, uh, let's not forget, he says, A.E. Houseman's take on Milton. Quote, Malt does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. <laughs> and that's uh, meaning beer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, of course, is from uh, the Houseman poem, Terence, This is Stupid Stuff. Can I, let me, let me make two responses to uh, uh, the first part of what the fellow had to say. And one is that this is not a new idea that people go to college and think uh, how much guilt will it put in my purse and the measure of all things is how much dough it uh, winds up generating. Uh, uh, but the truth is, you know, you guys are giving me a hard time about the meaning of life and all that jazz. And uh, on a more considered answer, it seems to me that one of the things that I've learned from great books and what great books can teach you is that the unexamined life is not worth living, that the highest satisfactions come from looking into the nature of your existence and uh, finding what is of value. Uh, integrity is stressed over and over in great books. What do you do with a, a serious counter view which one gets in much modern critical writing? 
Mark, in fact, has written about this. Whatever the, uh, the people who say they are doing theory, as if no one else does any kind of theory, uh, the, the, these are the people who are the postmodernists, whether they started in deconstructionism or in Lacanianism or in a hundred different varieties. Uh, but what they all essentially argue is there is finally there is no meaning. They are sophists in a way. Sophists come again. There's no final meaning. We construct it all, and it's all kind of a running game. One of the great uh, uh, exemplars of that whole attitude, and he made a, a full career out of it, was until quite recently the Dean of Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois here in Chicago, namely Stanley Fish. Well, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the things one learns by the sophomore year in college, especially the more clever ones, is ways to form clever arguments, uh, which often have uh, at their heart a kind of a nihilistic pursuit of becoming a, a gadfly. But I think ultimately that, that ends up being a, a failure of imagination. Uh, and it, it can, can block one from, from developing uh, the kind of sensibility that, that, that would come with extensive reading, uh, the cultivation of imagination, that is the burden that literature uh, places, places upon you. You know, reading theory is something that one can, uh, one, one can, not philosophy, but theory, one can master as a kind of technique fairly quickly. Uh, but reading literature, reading novels, dramas, plays, you have to imagine setting. You have to uh, put, put a plot together. You have to judge uh, characters and and see them, visualize them uh, as well, and and this is this is a kind of active attention that watching television, uh, playing video games with the sensory overload that comes with them does not cultivate. Uh, in terms of theory, I was very delighted. Uh, Daphne Patai, if I'm pronouncing her name, is publishing a new book. I just got it notice about it in the mail from Columbia University, uh, and the title of the book is The Death of Theory. And uh, let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, but um, uh, I would I would go so far as to say that most theory is irrelevant to the experience of literature, and that you can be right. utterly unacquainted with Derrida mm. and Foucault and concentrate entirely on reading Dickens and uh, and Orwell and others of the greats, uh, and. Uh, get absolutely more out of them, in fact, than um, uh, the solipsists who are writing this terribly jargon-choked uh, uh, prose, which uh, really oftentimes just is another cover for some ideological predisposition. Gentlemen, back to the phones. Here's another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, Dr. Rosenberg. Yes, sir. Uh, fine show is uh, not fourth in the case, but... Uh, I was wondering what criterion is used to de determine what is great literature. I, uh, I myself, for many years, considered Ayn Rand's works, uh, her fiction and her philosophy, to be uh, top-notch stuff. But after a number of years, I completely fell away from it. Now I consider it to be uh, a little more than drink. Ayn Rand, you say? Yeah. Whose uh, centenary was just celebrated, I That's gather. That's right. Yeah. Well, she's surely not great literature, but she strikes a uh, an interesting philosophical 
uh, pose or position, right. which well, which is very attractive to lots of people, particularly adolescents somehow. Well, one, one thing you would have to ask yourself is, okay, if Ayn Rand's novels are direct, the characters are simplistic, the plots are, are, are almost caricatures, fine. But why is it then that she has exercised such a powerful influence upon so so many individuals uh, in in adolescence, yes. But if if you if you go to a, a lot of uh, go to a lot of business schools, many of them have Ayn Rand societies. Well, what do you uh, make of on it? campus? What's your, what's your answer to your own question? I well, I, I I think I think it's complicated. I think it does appeal to often an, an adolescent temperament that is impatient uh, with uh, uh, impatient with becoming an independent individual, which often has an eye for social hypocrisies or the hypocrisies of collectivist uh, behaviors. This is sort and of, it appeals to the Holden Caulfields of the world, doesn't it? I, I, I think it does. If you, if you take away the, if you take away the self-pity in, mm -hmm. in Holden Caulfield, yeah. again, the ambitious and, and often clever uh, adolescent uh, is, is, I think, primed you know, for th uh, the fountainhead. I, what I was going to say is I think the, uh, the, the, the caller has made a very, very important point, and that is that one's sense of what's valuable and what's superior changes as one is more and more continuously immersed with great literature and works that may have seemed great at one point as you evolve your understanding and broaden it and deepen it. When you go back to it, it uh, doesn't seem terribly uh, profound at all. Um, in fact, I taught a contemporary novel uh, that I read in my 30s and thought was very um, uh, avant-garde and out there and very uh, uh, striking, Charles Bukowski. Mm -hmm. And I reread him now to teach him, and I found, God, this is just depressing. It's just a, he's irresponsible alcoholic. But, you know, in the meantime, I happen to have found out something about how alcoholics live and what they do to people around them. And it's not... When you're an adolescent, it seems like you're living, uh, Bukowski is giving you these vicarious thrills, but when you, when you grow up a little, you realize it's, it's relatively superficial stuff. Gentlemen, uh, a last pause for the usual reasons, and then directly back. And we go directly back to the phones, 591-7200. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Um, how's it going? I'm a uh, student at Aurora University. Um, I'm working on my master's degree in elementary and middle school education. Yes, sir. And, and we were assigned to uh, listen to you guys tonight. Really? I'm glad. Who assigned you? Uh, Dr. Uh, Jay Thomas hmm. at Aurora University. My goodness. And um, he was, uh, and I'm so glad that I listened to you guys because I just wanted to let you know that I really agree with um, that we should, you know, continue to uh, or, or reinstitute uh, great literary works into the curriculum because I was reading a passage in uh, Proverbs, which I believe is a great literary work, and it I think it sums up the benefits of. Uh, great literary works, and I was wondering if you mind if I listened. I mean, I read these, uh, these uh, what about five stanzas of it? Well, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. It says, and I think this is the benefit of great literary works: to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple. To the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. 
and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark saying. So this is what I believe, that we get out of reading all these books, yeah. like, you know, uh, the Bible, the Quran, and, as well as other, you know, secular great literary works, too. Well, I'm delighted with that quotation and with your having shared it with us. Some reactions from our guests. Mark. I, I think I couldn't agree more. And the uh, reassertion of the values and virtues uh, listed there, wisdom, you know, discretion, judgment, being something imparted to, to students, right. and that literature being uh, the, the primary vehicle for that. I, I'm right there. Sir, we thank you for the call. Very nice contribution indeed. And time being short, we'll rush quickly to the next. You are on the air. Good evening. Yeah, question for Bruce Gans. Bruce, is John Thyssen. Hey, Johnny. How are you? I owe you a phone call. Hi, me too. Um, here's one. Anyway, uh, Camille Paglia just came out with a book which attempts to get people to read good poetry. I wonder if you're familiar with it and if I should go out and buy it. I like Paglia a lot. I, uh, uh, I don't, but I heard it's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in, in this book, she apparently blasts just about all modern poetry, doesn't she? Well, it's pretty quirky, from what I understand, but not surprisingly. But, but I'm just wondering if it's if you're familiar with it, and it sounds interesting. What I've read about it. But well, I've seen I... some reviews of it, which uh, make it sound indeed quite interesting. Mark, yeah, have I, you seen it? I, I I haven't seen it. I mean, I've read other Camille Paglia's works, but uh, one, one thing one could one question one could pose to modern poetry is that why has it lost? so much of an audience. Uh, why does most modern poetry have only an audience of, of other poets? Why is it that so many, so many poetry magazines receive more submissions than they have circulation? I would suggest one reason is because it's so interior. Just as modern novels, so-called, are inwardly focused and are introspective and are often reworking the materials of family conflict or of adolescence and so on, uh, much poetry is self-referential right. and thus is, frankly, to me, a bore. bore, yeah, and, and, and also uh, it's written, you know, it's, it's written in formless, rhymeless yeah. fashion. Often with, uh, some obs with obscurity that uh, cannot really be easily penetrated unless you want to uh, get a lot of working notes which explain those metaphors and those very often quite private references. But that, of course, I think was it brought into poetry by T.S. Eliot? I, I think the, the high modernists brought difficulty, yeah. yes, in, into, into literature. At least, though, one felt that there would be a payoff by working through the difficulty of those works. Well, one isn't always sure of that with, uh, with contemporary. I've got an important email here I want to read to you and get your response to. The Internet is the place where an increasing number of the texts that people read are published. Consider the nature of the Internet and the habits of mind that it favors. From authors, it encourages concise, even highly abbreviated writing. Short texts and a generous use of, quote, multimedia or non-text elements, such as audio and video. From readers, it encourages scanning. Are the Internet and the other forms of electronic publishing that we see today in any way unfriendly to intellectual life as we know it, because they discourage slow, deliberative reading? A very important question, quite well put. Well, uh... Let me say uh, two things. One is I want to pick up on something a little earlier for that person. This is, this, is, this is in some way connected to the person who feels he has no time 
to to really read serious literature. Obviously, life can put you in a position where uh, it's very difficult. And I would suggest books on tape. I think those unabridged texts are are a wonderful spiritual source. But it is true. Uh, we are in the community colleges, and I assume elsewhere, uh, supposed to be stressing internet research. And I try not to do that in my classes because of the very nature of internet uh, sources. They're, they're brief. Uh, they are, by virtue of being brief, not very thorough or comprehensive and don't really stretch the mind much. Uh, but you know, it's it's eye candy. It's uh, it's modern. It's with it. It's now. So there's a lot of um, a lot of emphasis on it. But uh, you know, part of me wants to feel that if you have a mind that enjoys books and is accustomed to books, you know, uh, this has a a place, but only a, a small place. Before we close down, I do want to um, mention, or rather, to get you to mention, Bruce Gans, that Mark will be. Is it at Wright College tomorrow? That's right. From 12.30 to uh, about 2 o'clock, he is going to be speaking on the consequences of the decline of reading uh, at Wright College, uh, 4500 North Narragansett. He'll this be, is open to the general public? Yeah, generally. for free in the events building, and there's even going to be a reception afterwards. So uh, there's going to be a discussion. He's going to make some remarks, and then uh, we're going to solicit some kind of give and take, and uh, I'd like to see... Let's have that again. At Wright College, 1230, what address? Uh, 4500 North Narragansett. Uh, I'd also like to uh, inform listeners about an event tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. at the Chicago Public Library. The chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, Dana Joya, will be hosting a conversation uh, in the... Uh, on the on the issue of reading books, publishing, and the state of literary culture in America, in general, it's open to the public. It's in the mm. Cynthia Pritzker Auditorium at the at the downtown library at 6 p.m. And we have all of a minute and a half left. How do we round this out? I I think we round this out first mm. by saying that uh, those people who grow up in households or in schools who do not develop an appreciation for literature are, are missing out on one of the fundamental means of personal development, of intellectual development. They're uh, uh, forever cut off from uh, the joys of listening to Hamlet or of reading Wordsworth, joys that have endured, again, for, for hundreds of years. You know, these things are not just good for you, like flossing. Uh, the idea is that an engagement with them is to engage with some of the most profound and interesting people you're likely to have a conversation with. Gentlemen, I am much in your debt. It's been, uh, for me, a particularly pleasant, or rather, um, a, uh, an enthusiasm-rousing evening. Uh, some important things that need saying have been said and said very well by you. My guests have been Mark Bauerlein, of the National Endowment for the Arts and of the English Department at Emory University, and Bruce Gans, director of the Great Books Curriculum at Wright College, uh, one of the city colleges of Chicago.